The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Book Three, Postscript Thoughts. Hunger Season was supposed to be the end of the siege story, and yet there's a book four and five and a book six in the works. So how was book three an ending? To provide a little backstory on the ending that wasn't, we have to go back to the origins of Book One. As I'd mentioned before, Book One started out as a thought experiment. How would I get home from work if the grid failed? Back then, I was a member of a prepper forum on which some of the members shared their own prepper fiction writing. For fun, I expanded on my thought experiment and turned it into a story and shared it on the forum. At the end, I got Martin home. That was the goal of the thought experiment, after all. I thought I was done. The folks on the forum, however, liked the story and kept pestering me to know what happened next. For the forum folks, I wrote book two. And they also encouraged me to turn my forum story into a book on Amazon. While I was thinking of books one and two as ebooks, I thought the story needed more of an ending. I mean, book two just kind of stops when Martin gets home from the gang attack. None of the plot threads had any resolution. Book three was my attempt to resolve some of those loose plot threads and tie it all up with a neat bow. The most glaring and dangling of those threads was the awkward triangle with Susan, Martin, and Margaret. What happens there? people asked. Book two stressed how the Simmons house and most of their neighbors didn't have enough food to survive the winter. Did they all starve? the forum folks asked. What happened to them? I had some guys on the forum who thought Margaret should die or something so that Martin would become available for Susan. I didn't like the idea of casting aside a wife so that the other woman could win. One of the guys on the forum thought that the story should morph into a sort of sister-wives tale. Yeah, I certainly wasn't going to go down that road. No, to resolve the triangle, I needed some reason to remove Susan from the scene without killing anybody off. I also needed some rescue food that would get the people of Cheshire, and New Hampshire generally, through the winter. So, the plot of Book 3 took shape. Operation Longbow would resolve the two big loose threads. Susan saved the day, but was prevented from returning. Chapter 20, the final chapter, would be the end of the siege story, in a sort of happily-ever-after moment. Didn't it feel like a movie ending? Couldn't you just hear the orchestral score fading in as the camera on a boom began to rise up and away, Martin and Margaret standing arm in arm just before the credits started to roll up the screen? Couldn't you picture it? Well, I did. With my three books set complete, I published them on Amazon. Not long after publication, readers wanted to know what happened to Susan. It seemed she had developed a fan base. What happened next? I guess my fading into the orchestral score and rising boom shot weren't quite ending enough. So, books four and five followed. While I was resolving the triangle and the food, I wove into book three some other issues that people would have to deal with in a prolonged grid-down world. What happens to all of those unprepared people after things start to run out? And what would people do with some of the criminals when the legal system wasn't available? Book three took a deeper look at people coping with the longer disruption of normal life and no easy fix in sight. For the masses of the unprepared, 
it's only a matter of time. Almost everyone can handle a disruption of a day or two. A disruption of a week or so, however, would see some people running out of food or fuel. Charitable friends and neighbors would help them out where they could. But personal charity tends to have its limits, though. If there was a very disruptive event, like what happened in the siege story, where the grid is down for months and maybe not coming back any time soon, almost everyone's economic security would be upended. Much of what people rely upon for their economic security simply wouldn't be there anymore. A fat bank account would be useless if you couldn't get at it, and even if you did, there'd be no stores open to spend it in. A good-paying job would be useless if your employer was out of business. We saw a foretaste of that in COVID. People perfectly willing to work, but their employer was closed down. No paychecks, and the cupboard gets bare. With such an upheaval, there'd be a whole lot of people who wouldn't know where their next meal was coming from. With the lack of fuel or utilities, many people would become essentially unsheltered. There could be tens of thousands of the suddenly poor. Modern society has its problems dealing with the poor we have right now. With such a disruptive event, government programs would be hamstrung to do much of anything, let alone accommodate the tidal wave of the suddenly poor. How would cities, towns, or neighborhoods deal with all of these suddenly poor in their community? For Book 3, I imagined an historical solution getting revived the poor farm, or in the case of Cheshire, the town farm. Poor farms were fairly prevalent in the 1800s and up until the 1930s, when the modern welfare state began. Even at that, though, poor farms weren't the first thing people tried in an effort to care for the poor. Before there were poor farms, individual towns, or counties, were deemed responsible for taking care of the poor and indigent within their borders. Way back, like in the Middle Ages, it was churches that undertook caring for the poor, caring for the widows and orphans, like it says in James 1.27. This was usually done in an almshouse, which was a mix between an old-age home, mental asylum, debtor's halfway house, and a hospital. Often enough, the borders of a town and the borders of a parish were the same. The parishioners were also the town folk. So, church or town, it was kind of the same thing. But, as towns grew and began to have several churches, responsibility for providing for those who couldn't take care of themselves morphed into a town responsibility. Of course, given human nature, whenever you have a charity handing out free stuff, it attracts moochers who want a freeload. As populations increased, so did the number of moochers. They strained local budgets. One way the towns of New England tried to deal with moochers was a common-law notion that people belonged to their hometown. It was a hometown's responsibility to take care of its poor citizens. So, for instance, if the town of Salem got tired of a lazy shirker taking advantage of Salem's charity, they could warn out that man. Warning out was an official notice to leave town. The selectman of Salem, for instance, could say, Well, you came from Haverhill, so you're Haverhill's problem, not ours. Move along. Warning out wasn't usually forceful, like running someone out of town on a rail. That was usually reserved for swindlers and cheats. But, once warned out, the person was then unnoticed that they were ineligible for any more charity from that town. Typically, the freeloader moved on to some other town to mooch off of. The problem with the warning out solution 
was that the ultimate responsibility was tough to establish. Salem might say the man was Haverhill's problem. Haverhill would say, oh, he came from Newburyport, not our problem. Newburyport would say, oh, he came from Boston, etc., etc. Instead of kicking a can down the road, they kicked the indigent down the road. It wasn't a very good solution. The next idea to take hold was to give the poor some constructive work in exchange for their care. In Charles Dickens's London, it took the form of workhouses, which could be kind of grim. In rural areas of New England and the eastern states, this usually took the form of a poor farm, a place where the poor could do some constructive work in exchange for their room and board. The thought, too, was that freeloaders don't like to work, so they wouldn't stick around. Such poor farms were usually working farms, with fields and livestock to tend. Sometimes the farm only managed to provide food for its residents. Sometimes it made a modest profit to offset the cost of operation. The able-bodied poor, whether folks financially strapped or the mentally challenged, or even a petty criminal doing restitution, they were all expected to work for their room and board. An elderly widow, or a cripple who couldn't work very much, could still help out in the laundry or the kitchen, even if it was just sitting at a table cutting vegetables for the soup pot. It was some way to contribute. In a culture that still valued a strong work ethic and self-sufficiency, there was a sort of stigma in ending up at the poor farm. Being a frail old widow or disabled or unable to work was one thing, but to be able-bodied and having mismanaged your financial affairs so badly that you were penniless was humiliating. Yeah, not so much nowadays. Poor farms weren't comfortable resorts. They were usually quite spartan, as accommodations go. Many people sleeping in the same room, humble meals, the work is often hard. While that might sound like the poor were being punished for being poor, which was an accusation often hurled at poor farms by comfortable city folks, a tough life was a reality for most farm families. They didn't live in fancy houses, eating fancy food, and whiling away the afternoon sipping tea on the veranda. No, farm life was not for wimps. With the advent of the modern welfare state, the care of the poor became the responsibility of big government. Welfare money was dispensed to the poor wherever they lived. Most poor farms phased out of operation by the 1940s. This brings me back to the question that I started with. If a big collapse event occurred and hundreds of thousands of people became suddenly poor, what would communities do with them? In my hunger season story, the town of Cheshire revived the old notion of a town farm. It provided housing to people whose homes were no longer habitable due to lack of heat. It provided meals to people who had run out of food. The town dairy was a second poor farm, with residents helping tend the cows and farm chores in exchange for room and board. What do you think your community would do if there were such an event? What would they do with the wave of the suddenly poor? They'd have to do something with them. Another topic explored in Book 3 was the fate of the rule of law. If something disrupts the normal justice system, would Mad Max-style dog-eat-dog chaos break out within hours or days, where only the strong or the heavily armed survive? This is a pretty common scenario in a lot of prepper fiction. Such chaos certainly does lend itself to lots of action scenes, and it's also good for the impatient reader who wants a gunfight in the first dozen pages. But is that really what would happen? 
Back in book one, I described how I thought things would be more likely to play out right after the event occurred. Normalcy bias would win out over Mad Max. The vast majority of people wouldn't quickly conclude that it was the end of the world as they knew it and start panic looting. Instead, they'd sit around waiting for someone to fix things and normal life to resume. Of course, book one only covered the first three or four days. But what about after that? It'd be nice to think that people would, for the most part, cooperate and help each other cope. But after seeing the summer of 2020 and all the riots and bad behavior, eh, you kind of wonder. Lapsing into violent mobs seems pretty easy for human nature. Natural or not, mobs never did make things better. Mobs don't solve crimes. They just make sure that someone, anyone, is severely punished. Mobs don't build homes or businesses. They burn them down. Maybe after a massive collapse situation, it's not a question of if people would become an angry mob, but how long until they do. I don't know if you noticed, now you probably did notice, that in the early part of Book 3, at the start of that trial for Trevor, the captured gang member, the people of Cheshire were angry and sullen, but they weren't a lynch mob, eh, not yet. Landers worried about people feeling like they would have to take justice into their own hands if something wasn't done. Landers wanted them to see that law and order, especially order, still worked. Later in Book 3, when the people thought a neighbor of Earl and Edith was their murderer, they were on the edge of becoming a deadly mob. The citizens' tendency to become a rash and violent mob were increasing. Then, nearer the end, when the people found out that Candace had been selling them out, they did become a violent mob that very likely would have killed if a few brave men hadn't stood in the way. The people of Cheshire were finding it easier and easier to ignore rules and laws and just follow their animal impulses. Law and order prevailed, yeah, but only just barely. After the past couple of years of seeing how many cities around the world had violent crowds rampaging through their streets, burning, destroying, killing, you can see how fragile the veneer of civilization can be. I still don't think the world would devolve into Mad Max within a few hours, but I have to wonder what might happen within a month or two. The Landers character worried that if people lost hope in the law to deliver real justice, that they'd follow their passions instead. As we've seen over the past few years, mobs are easy to get started and very hard to stop, and they leave only destruction in their wake. If there were to be such a disruptive event, like in the siege stories, and the regular systems of justice became unavailable, what would people do? On the darker side, you can imagine outraged mobs destroying whatever upset them. In the hunger season story, I explored a more optimistic alternative, that the people would take the reins of rule of law themselves, not as a mob does with kangaroo courts, lynchings, and imposing its capricious self-will on others but trying to apply the law in an objective standard for judging right and wrong, guilt or innocence. Pundits explain the failure of Western nations to try and install democratic governments in countries like Afghanistan on the fact that the Afghans had no tradition with and no culture of the rule of law. Instead, they had a tradition of cronyism, tribalism, bribery, and violence. So I wondered... Would a people who did have a culture and tradition of the rule of law hang on to that? Or would they lapse into the law of the jungle? 
For the people of Cheshire, taking the reins of the law meant having to do the work themselves. Pat wasn't a judge and really didn't want to be one, but she did it anyway, so the legal process could work. Martin wasn't a lawyer, and he didn't want to be one either, but took the job for the sake of the judicial process. Others filled in their roles, too. Their efforts weren't polished and professional, but they had a common goal of making sure that things were dealt with fairly. It seems like, these days, people are outsourcing their interpersonal conflict resolution to the professionals, the police and courts. Someone calls the police because the pizza place left off one of their toppings. Someone sues a bakery because their Hawaiian rolls were actually made in California. It's a Hawaiian recipe, by the way. How adrift would people like this be if the legal system professionals weren't there anymore to settle their disputes? What'll they do? If the legal system was no longer available where you live, what do you think people who live around you would do? Well, now that we've gotten to the end of Book 3, I'll be putting those chapters through Audible's process and turning them into an audiobook. I know you just listened to the whole story, but if you wanted a free copy of the audiobook, if not for yourself, maybe a gift, just drop me an email at mick at mick-roland.com. When the book goes live, I'll send you the promo code. And, not to get all self-promotion-y, but if you wanted to leave a glowing review of Book 3 on Audible, they insist that you actually downloaded the book and listened to it. You could use the free promo code for that. Just remember to let the audio file play, even if you're sleeping at the time. Audible knows, somehow, if you've actually played the file or not. It's a little more bother, but their system does tend to filter out the trolls. Well, that's it for some of my author notes on Book 3. Next week, I'll have an interview I did with a man who farms with horses. In Books 2 and 3, I showed a few instances of horses being used in lieu of vehicles in a grid-down world. In such a world, people wouldn't have abundant diesel fuel to farm the land. How would people grow enough food? What would it actually be like to grow food using horses instead of tractors? Here's a little sample. The problem is with beginning Teamsters, they want to micromanage that plow. And yeah, everybody thinks you got to get on that plow and manhandle it. And when you're starting out, you do have to kind of steer the plow because you're opening that ground. The horses don't know where to walk. You got to tell them which direction to go. And it can be kind of difficult because they're pulling this heavy load. And so they kind of go side to side and you want to go them straight. But once you make a few rounds and the one horse, if you're using two, is going to be walking in that furrow, they've got a line to follow. So as long as you can keep them in that line, that plow will run and you don't have to do anything. If you micromanage and you start pushing, you'll lift up on the handles and you'll push that plow deeper than it needs to go. And then it gets really hard for the horses. And if you push down on the handles, it'll pop the plow to the ground. And then you kind of have a mess there because your ground isn't evenly plowed. And So yeah, it can be a lot of work. Next week, we'll find out more. I hope you can join me for that. Pretty soon, we'll get started on Book 4, Susan's Bridge. I do appreciate your support for this project by buying me a coffee, and I'd like to thank my members of both Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon for their ongoing support of the work. <laughs>